Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with last night's CNN Town Hall, which had Donald Trump spewing out a torrent of lies, steamrolling the valiant moderator trying to fact-check him before a Republican audience that applauded his crude and cruel remarks. Joining us to discuss a problem that goes beyond Trump's unstable unfitness for office as our country appears to be falling into the grip of madness is Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and published the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. She's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition, and her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Then, with COVID-era Title 42 rules for asylum ending at midnight tonight, We'll examine the fate of at least 60,000 desperate and destitute migrants stuck across the border in Mexico, with another 11,000 deported yesterday and thousands more in the pipeline seeking asylum but facing law enforcement and military deployments rather than humanitarian assistance. Joining us is Michelle Garcia, a journalist, SAS, and former Soros Equality Fellow at the Open Society Foundation, a former Texas correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review and a former columnist for the Texas Observer. She's the director of the PBS documentary Against Mexico, The Making of Heroes and Enemies and is currently working on a book about borders and their powerful influence on U.S. identity, politics and the culture of violence. Then finally, we'll look into the unrest in a politically unstable and economically fragile Pakistan where a former prime minister was just arrested after his followers had attacked military posts in response to Imran Khan having been built up by a powerful military, then cut down to size, as like Trump, he thought he was above the law, or in this case, the real power in the country. Joining us is Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is the author of Fighting to the End, the Pakistani Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and a world-renowned expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and the Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. She's currently the president of the World Mental Health Coalition, and her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Bandy Lee. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And after watching uh, Donald Trump's town hall last night on CNN, I'm left with the concern that we know about Trump's mind, but what about America's mind? I mean, the people there were there were Republican supporters and some independents, but they were cheering wildly at the, at his crudest and most cruel statements. And I'm wondering whether he could become president again, and whether there's enough people in this country that support him. And it feels like not just an individual case of madness, but a kind of collective case of madness. Well, you are correct in sensing that there is a great collective problem happening right now. And that is the reason why I had been framing the problem of Donald Trump since the very beginning, since we first started speaking up about him in 2016, and since our book, uh, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, came out, that he is a public health problem. And what we are seeing now is precisely what we had feared would happen if there is no containment of the dangers. Well, we've seen how a country can get gripped by madness. It happened in the UK, which is, you know, considered to be a fairly sane place with a lot of history. They voted for Brexit and they were beguiled into doing so by similar kind of bottom-feeding populist grifters like Trump, in this case, Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. And, of course, it's totally paralyzed the UK. And to this day, they can't get out from under it. Uh, and then we have a similar situation going on now with the debt ceiling, with the House Republicans threatening to basically destroy the American economy and the global economy. And needless to say, last night in the debate, Donald Trump encouraged the House Republicans to, to default on the debt. Yes, of course. As a psychiatrist and as a medical professional, what alarmed me and prompted me to speak up publicly for the first time in my 25-year career was that this was more a public health problem and a public mental health problem than anything else. And you very astutely observed that something similar has happened with the UK and that history, intelligence, and even uh, the, the strength of institutions cannot uh, withstand and do not make a nation immune from this kind of problem when mental pathology takes over. In fact, mental capacity is often uh, the prerequisite to be able to carry out every other function. And so when mental pathology spreads, it takes away that capacity. So what has led to or what has contributed to the enormous alienation that exists here in our politics with so many people basically seeing uh, 
conventional politics and politicians like Joe Biden, who's a lifelong career politician, as the problem and see somebody like Trump, who's so manifestly unstable and monstrously incompetent, yet they see him as a solution. Well, it is a feature of mental pathology, in fact, a defining feature, that it will be uh, enormously attracted to choices and um, options, uh, desires that will bring one to self-destruction. That's the very definition of uh, mental disorder. And that is why it was very important to point out that whatever effectiveness people are seeing in Donald Trump is not true effectiveness, but actually his symptoms spreading. And, uh, and I've also said that if given the same platform, if these symptoms would be normalized, then there is no level of rational persuasion or any kind of logical discourse that could counteract that because this goes far beyond any of that. In fact, it's the very uh, condition that makes logical discussion impossible. And uh, it, uh, what happened at the town hall, which was very concerning from the start, was that he was allowed to be aired at all, because once he is aired, uh, that allows for the conditions for his symptoms to spread. And what we're seeing in the American public is not a given. It is not a, a, a choice that people would have made without the spread of his symptoms. It is, in fact, the very result of an unmitigated four-year presidency and continued normalization of his methods. In fact, the more time passed uh, during which he was not held accountable would count in his mind and his followers' minds as success. And therefore, he is now a very successful politician, uh, so-called politician, in the minds of those who have been, uh, I would say, uh, infected by um, what, what I have been calling Trump contagion. In other words, it's a, it's a change in cognitive structure and, in fact, an alteration even of reality, because that's how he invents his own reality. Uh, through his own emotional needs, his his incredibly forceful, compulsive emotional needs, uh, and therefore, um, well, that uh, that shows how strong the mind's ability is to uh, to distort and reconfigure reality when the need is strong enough. Well, we've heard reports that his father was quite brutal, and that the oldest brother drank himself to death and the, the father kept telling young Donald you've got to be a killer you've got to be a killer the worst thing in the world is to be a loser so I don't know what the significance of that is but it's, this is clearly a man who cannot face the truth and he certainly can't face the truth about the fact that he lost the last election so for Donald Trump is it a case of him not being able to face the truth or is the truth for him simply an inconvenience well, truth, in fact, uh, is rather meaningless to him because he's not very well tethered to the truth. Um, his emotional needs have uh, created such a need for reinvention of the truth that um, he 
what is truth to him is what is emotionally tolerable and pleasing and and uh, fulfills this void that he cannot tolerate under ordinary circumstances. And so he's constantly looking for assertions, claims that would help uh, help alleviate that egoic pain, the pain in his his psyche. Ordinary individuals don't need to reinvent reality to be able to bear it. But in his case, he does. And, and his ability to do so has attracted a, ferv- a fervent following because uh, one of the greatest needs of, of mental pathology is to be told that their desired reality is true, not actual reality. Of course, in, that, in the process of that, they may be able to relieve themselves of some pain, but they, in the course of it, become unable to live in reality and either destroy others or themselves or or all all the world altogether and that's that's really um the pathology we uh see in dangerous leaders and um uh, adolf hitler was said to have a seismograph of of crowds in other words he can sense the crowds and what the crowds need in order to uh, bring them to his point of view. Well, I would say that Donald Trump has the same. It's not that um, it's not that it's so extraordinary, but what is extraordinary is that such an individual with um, one would hardly call it skill because it's a survival technique in their mind, uh, and they have spent their entire lives practicing it, while the rest of the world has. Uh, honed uh, needed skills or abilities to navigate the world, they have honed this skill uh, to to essentially to manipulate and shape the minds of others in order to suit their own desired reality. And we are exposing the public to this extreme public health threat. And unfortunately, that is the reason why I have said that uh, 2023, in 2023, Donald Trump is more dangerous than he was in 2015. And un- unless there is a dramatic shift in how we handle him, uh, in other words, there there ought to be mental health experts speaking on every program and, and alerting to these dangers, explaining these dynamics so that what is remaining of the healthy population can protect itself. But none of that is happening, and and time and again, the public is exposed to more and more of his pathology, which is weakening the public, weakening our institutions and our democracy, and has allowed for Trump imitators to follow suit, such as we see in George Santos. Uh, Our entire public discourse has changed, politics have changed, and this kind of spread of pathology and, in fact, destructiveness to the public is uh, considered a valid means for political success. So how much is the change in the media landscape and the influence of social media affecting this change? Because there's a lot of criticism of CNN, obviously, both before and after last night's town hall with Donald Trump. And the new head of uh, Warner Brothers Discoveries is one of of the slash-and-burn, numbers-crunching Wall Street sociopaths, David Zaslav, who paid himself $250 million in 2021 and then fired thousands of CNN and Warner Brothers staff. 
you know, you could argue on the one hand that having Trump away from the protective bubble of right-wing media like Fox to expose who he really is may actually be a, a public service. But I don't know that uh, they were thinking of that. I think it was more of a case of the idea that the media gave Trump $5 billion worth of free advertising in 2016 simply because he makes headlines through outrageous behavior. And social media operates on the principle of engagement via enragement. Yes. So all those mechanisms. Uh, You brought up my book earlier, Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Uh, The purpose of the book is to try to outline these, uh, these dynamics that there were three conditions necessary for uh, Trumpism to spread, what I call the Trump contagion. It's just an easy way of explaining emotional contagion and the shared psychosis that results. Um, There are three conditions that are necessary. First is the offending agent, uh, the person with a primary disorder who spreads uh, illness through, given the right circumstances. And uh, the right circumstances are created by the media, the media, including the unregulated uh, mass media, which uh, depends greatly on profit, and also the the cultic programming that happens with the propaganda channels, uh, Fox News and Newsmax, um, and uh, and certainly social media are uh, we even. Uh, use the term viral, uh, how uh, social media um, outputs aspire to go viral, it follows very much the the mechanisms of infectious disease. And this could be seen as a form of infectious disease. Infectious disease doesn't just happen because of a virus or germ. Uh, It happens because certain conditions are met. Uh, number one, there there's the existence of the germ, but there's also a weakened immune system in the host. And also there are uh, social and um, economic conditions that predispose someone to, uh, or predispose entire populations to becoming infected. And, um, and so the three conditions in the situation of the Trump contagion is Donald Trump himself, the media landscape, including social media, and thirdly, the socioeconomic conditions that have given rise to uh, these emotional vulnerabilities in the first place. Uh, We have seen throughout history that during times of socioeconomic crises or or deprivation that uh, such impaired leaders arise because the society is made vulnerable. When uh, a vast segment of the population is oppressed by vast inequalities or increasing unemployment, then then we just think of it in terms of material deprivation, but we do not think of how it translates into emotional vulnerabilities, increased uh, levels of mental illness, um, and and of course, in there could be included uh, uh, lack of access to health care, lack of ex- access to education and uh, social contacts that could mitigate exposure to um, to those vulnerabilities. And that collectively 
allows for conditions where whereby Trumpism could spread in the manner that we have seen over the last uh, eight years. Now, during the last two years, because he was deplatformed from Twitter mainly and uh, other uh, other outlets, we have seen an attenuation of his influence. Uh, but again, we see uh, because of the, the the lack of consequences for his actions, lack of prosecution, lack of actual taking him into custody, which was necessary to truly inoculate the population against repeat infections. We are now seeing a repeat of what has happened with his previous exposures. And now this is far more dangerous than in 2015 because the population is much more weakened, institutions are weakened, our democracy is at a teetering uh, brink of collapse, uh, had collapsed, uh, I believe, uh, earlier in 2021. We were no longer a democracy at that time. I think we're barely back now, but uh, but it has the potential to collapse again. Uh, how can this be possible through one individual? Uh, I would emphasize it's not just one individual, but the platforms we give him, the exposure we give him, and uh, multiple uh, reproductions of him through imitation and um, and propagation of his methods, uh, as well as uh, the buttressing of those with similar symptoms. And so we we have to see this as a very dangerous moment. Of course, I've been uh, encouraged by um, and urged for the last uh, couple years, actually, that um, that there needs to be another book, The More Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. I would say that, uh, yes, indeed, we are facing the more dangerous case of Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure if that kind of book is exactly the answer, uh, probably a, a much more, um, uh, a much more assertive intervention is necessary, and we will do, be doing what we can, but uh, the lack of exposure of voice to voices that truly have the answers, who deal with this kind, these kinds of symptoms day in and day out, this is not a political issue. Even historians don't have the solutions. Mental health professionals, on the other hand, deal with the management of these symptoms day in and day out. And the appropriate mental health experts could help advise uh, political leaders, policymakers, uh, those who are in positions to uh, to truly um, uh, help contain this danger uh, on on how best to manage the situation, because so far no one is. So just in the last minute then, Dr. Bandy Lee, uh, I'm a journalist, so give me some advice, if you will. I watched... Caitlin Collins, who got some bad press because she comes from the caller, the right-wing outfit that was founded by uh, Tucker Carlson. But actually, she did a great job. She, I think she was quite admirable standing on the stage against this blizzard of lies, trying to fact-check this unhinged pathological liar who was spitting out lies like machine gun bullets. Yes, so, uh, I would add that fact-checking alone will no longer work at this point. Uh, just as the pandemic, the pandemic may have worked with uh, simple measures in the very beginning, but later on we need vaccines, we need, the more it spreads, the more aggressive um, containment measures we need. And the same applies here. 
So just quickly, if you will, what practically could I and our listeners do to stop this dangerous possibility of this even more dangerous man coming back into the White House? Yes, I think you uh, you have done a great job airing mental health professionals, and you have aired me quite a few times now. But I think all media organizations need to address the fact that we are facing a public mental health crisis and emergency, and that this is a mental health issue. And uh, and policy-wise, uh, certainly the American Psychiatric Association, which has hugely profited from silencing mental health experts, should absolutely um, reverse its disinformation campaign of how mental health professionals are not supposed to speak up on these issues. In fact, they are obligated to by the Geneva Declaration, by its by the APA's own ethics code, and um, and by all core tenets of. Uh, medical ethics, we are supposed to protect public health and public safety. And that overrides every other rule. That's where they uh, spread disinformation in order to advantage themselves politically. Uh, and, and certainly we can learn from this the importance of regulating the media. Uh, we cannot have the media causing harm to the public, just as we have limitations to First Amendment rights when it actually harms other people and causes violence. It is no longer a right when it starts impinging on others' rights. It's no longer a right. And uh, certainly we need to work with the media, uh, work on regulating the media in that when it starts harming the public, rather than serving the public, there has to be limitations. And then finally, what originated this, this problem, the socioeconomic crisis, which we are still undergoing, and it can all be traced back to that. Since, uh, since the early 1980s, the US has diverged from the rest of the world in escalating the economic inequality of its population and now has spread its methods around the world with globalization. And uh, this is truly the source of the mental health crisis that we see today and the aftermath of it in the political scene. Well, Dr. Bandy Lee, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Bandy Lee, who's a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist, and a world expert on violence, who taught at the Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known for her to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. And she's currently the president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the fate of hundreds of thousands of desperate and destitute migrants seeking asylum on the border but facing law enforcement and military deployments rather than humanitarian assistance.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Brownsville on the southern border is Michelle Garcia, a journalist, essayist, and current Soros Equality Fellow at the Open Society Foundation, a former Texas correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review, and a former columnist for the Texas Observer. She's the director of the PBS documentary Against Mexico, The Making of Heroes and Enemies, and is currently working on a book about borders and their powerful influence on U.S. identity identity, politics, and culture. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michelle Garcia. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Michelle, and you're right there at ground zero on the southern border. It's estimated that there are between 150,000 and 60,000 migrants stuck in Mexico just across the border, and yesterday the U.S. deported 11,000 migrants, So, and there's many more in the pipeline. So is there a solution to this, apart from the fact that the head of the Department of Homeland Security made a press conference today and offered what he claimed were some solutions, but they're clearly inadequate given the human condition or the desperate condition of human beings down there on that southern border? Well, I think it depends on a person's definition of solution, right? Is the solution that the United States is uh, preparing and has prepared to expand its capacity to uphold its laws and process people who are seeking asylum, right? Is that, that is one solution. To other people, the solution is the complete elimination of migration altogether, Right. But that the problem is defined as the presence of migrating people at the border. And when we look at these numbers, we have to remember that Title 42, the public health uh, policy that was adopted by the former president and extended by the current president, has been in place now for a number of years, three years. What do we think has happened in that time? Right. A number of, you know, Border Patrol agents have returned or expelled. And that's the word that's often used, expelled, you know, over a million people. And it is sort of a folly to think what that people disappear, that um, that their situation or the conditions that they're fleeing just simply end because the United States doesn't want to see them. That's childish. It's impractical. It's um, delusionary. And so I think right now the question very much is when we talk about a solution, it's defining what the problem is. And unfortunately, um, the problem is very much framed by a, an ongoing years-long effort to define anything that occurs at the border as inherently criminal, as inherently bad. And that is really underscored right now by two images that I think are very compelling. One, you have Texas state troopers who are preventing people from seeking asylum at the border. That is illegal. Um, federal law, right? You know, a person doesn't have to be, as of right now, at a port of entry to seek asylum. Um, and then you have the other one, which is the long lines of people that you're seeing at the 
at the southern border, along the border wall, waiting to be processed. And the, the situation is such that um, the public has a really hard time discerning who is actually committing an illegal act. Is it the people who are waiting to be processed to assert their claims? Or is it the people who are preventing the law from taking place? So that is just one example of the complexity of this. When we talk about solutions, it's defining the problem. But you have to add to the law enforcement presence of the Border Patrol, on top of which, what, 1,500 uh, soldiers have arrived at the border as well? Everyone, I mean, there's a helicopter that's outside my window. You'll hear it in a minute, I mean, every 15 minutes. It had been a Customs and Border Protection helicopter, and now it looks to be a military helicopter. And then there's also the state troopers, the National Guard, the Texas Guard. You have the local police, sheriffs. I mean, any law enforcement agency a person can imagine is here, which is very interesting, right? Because if, if it is described by politicians and policymakers as a humanitarian crisis, uh, where are the humanitarian workers? Where, is, where are the images of that aspect to the situation? Again, we go back to this is a, this is a situation that is very powerfully influenced by images. And so it is the outpouring of law enforcement reinforces the idea that this is a solely a security matter and it diminishes the aspect of people getting processed, people uh, seeking asylum, the humanitarian part, the law part, the releasing of people. So right now um, it is going to be very decisive going forward. And we see this with the change in asylum law, which side of this, or how to reconcile these images and, and this impression of the border as an inherently lawless place. But the images we don't see that precedes the arrival of these desperate people to the southern border are just horrendous. So in terms of this being a humanitarian issue and not a law enforcement issue, you have people going through in droves through the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama and then taking this incredibly dangerous journey, often by freight train, clinging onto a freight train, all the way up to the border, all the way they fight hideous conditions in the jungle, exploitation by drug cartels, rape and murder, preyed upon all the way, having to give over bits and bits of what little money they have, all the way up through Central America and Mexico, only to get here and then to be turned away. It's just extraordinary what these people go through. And when, and in the case of the Venezuelans, you know, you've got people that are, you know, had to flee a country that's what exported a third of its population, and then at this point, apparently the U.S. is going to admit thirty thousand migrants a month from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, who only if those have applied online or have a sponsor. So the problem, if you can call it a problem, 
is not being addressed in terms of the desperation of humanity. It's being addressed in terms of, as you say, a security and a police matter. But do you think the American people have lost their humanity in regard to this issue? What's happened here? What can be done to reverse the focus away from from the militarization and and law enforcement to having, as you suggested, where are the humanitarian workers? So I think that I want to, I think it's important to clarify something. The security and law enforcement, and this is why earlier I said, you know, solely is that, because this is not an either or, right? I mean, there are agents and there are people to process people and there's people to uh, monitor the river or the border that's all inherent. The question becomes when that is, it becomes a myopic, when it becomes a myopia, when that is the singular, right? There's one hammer, right? And that's just that. And I think what has happened is that there has been almost no options for the U.S. public to consider. I mean, consider the images that people see. And I'll I'll give you one right here in Brownsville, You've been seeing these images of people lined up on a levee. I live right near there. What you don't see in a lot of those images is the immense amount of law enforcement necessarily surrounding it or the fact that there's a university across the street or that there is the tight focus on people lined up is a reflection of our perception, right? I mean, it, it reflects the fact that it, it strips out the context of the surroundings to reinforce the idea that people standing in line waiting to be processed is inherently a problem. I think, too, that – and there was an excellent, interesting point you know, that was made yesterday by the president of Refugees International – who reminded, uh, issued an interesting reminder that one in every five people in Lebanon is a Syrian refugee, that Colombia is hosting almost two million Venezuelans. Costa Rica has, you know, a tiny country in Central America has taken in hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers. This is the United States of America. And somehow, other countries, Spain, they have taken people in, these countries in, in, in South America, taken people in, asylum seekers. So the question is, why? What other options? What has Colombia done? What has Costa Rica done that is not occurring in the United States? And I think in regard to, you know, I think part of it, too, Ian, is that this is a matter of it's not even the, it, it's a matter of the perception of the border itself, that we have arrived at a place within our political landscape in which border security is synonymous with the absence of migrating people. And that is untenable. It is unrealistic. It is impractical. It is delusionary. And so how do how can we talk about what is occurring and ask practical questions? For example, Secretary Mayorkas said today 700 people are being processed every day on CPB1, the app to uh, get an 
an appointment and arrive at the port of entry and uh, have an appointment to have your claim heard. 700 people across the entire border every day, and they're going to increase that to 1,000. So you have to ask yourself, well, why hadn't they done that before? They've had two years, right? I mean, these questions that are in many ways are not very interesting to look at, but should be considered in terms of managing the border. And I'll give you, I'll leave you with this thought too. As we've talked about, I live literally a few meters from the river. And every day I'm confronted with two images. One, the long line of people on the levee who are being processed. And then at the port of entry, the bridge, people cross that bridge. They're, or they're, they've, been present, they've presented themselves to Customs and Border Protection they are released, and then they get on a bus, they get on a shuttle, they get in a cab, they go about on their way. And that sense of management is, people don't see that. People don't see this that I see every single day. And so they, unfortunately, only, have, I'm, I'm afraid, have come to expect that it can only look this way with the helicopters, with the troops, with the long lines, that it has to be um, a procedural chaos. But the people that, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of the migrants, the one thing that you hear constantly from migrants who've made this incredibly hazardous journey that I was just talking about a minute ago, braving cartel thieves and murderers and being gouged for you know, a glass of water uh, and threatened by snakes in the jungle. And then all of them are driven by the notion that in America, you're free, you're safe, safety. So that's what I find extraordinary to think that somehow we are a beacon of safety and asylum for these traumatized people. But we don't necessarily welcome them. So how does one deal with this in terms of the irony of, of being a magnet for people who want to share our values at the same time shutting the door on these people? If what a person needs in order to uphold its asylum laws, treat people humanely, and respect our laws and manage our border is to cling to and perpetuate the uh, image of uh, sort of uh, Ellis Island, Statue of Liberty, the United States is a beacon. Okay, go with that. Go with that. But th that is equally problematic as the people who think that, um, that what's happening at the border is a complete and utter crisis and, and, and these people represent a threat. We, that means we're oscillating between two very powerful mythologies. Now, is the beacon, has the United States been that? Yes. But that, but that the, the feeling, of, oh, they're coming here uh, to share our values and uh, do this work. We have laws. We have commitments to the international community of the United States. The United States has signed treaties. And so that, that beacon, you know, is, um, pales 
in the sense of like when it comes to actually caring and upholding um, commitments, people are fleeing a situation that not and every situation's different. I mean, I met a lady; she was shot by you know by organized crime. I met some other people trying to reunite with the father of the you know her husband who's in North Carolina, and they're fleeing Venezuela because the country is you know, in a disarray. Um, but I, I think that we have to maybe have a sober and critical discussion about how the border's managed that is not predicated on mythologies. And maybe that's what's necessary, right? Maybe that's what's necessary, but... I don't deal in that. I deal in facts. I deal in what I see here and convincing people to, oh, we're the land of the free and and all of that. Leave that to the politicians. Mm -hmm. I'm a journalist. And what I see is what is my job is to hold people accountable. My job is to witness what is occurring on the ground. And if a person needs to be um, to hearken to those 19th century mythologies, then okay. But let's also remember that the reason that we have asylum laws in place right now is because during World War II, the United States turned away thousands of Jews who were fleeing Germany. That there was no, you know, this beacon did not shine in World War II for Jews, who many of whom died as a result of being turned away when they sought asylum. That is why our asylum laws exist the way they do, because of the lessons learned from that, because of the moment when the United States did not uphold those values, it's, and, and, and then enshrine them into laws and treaties. Well, Michelle Garcia, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It was good to be with you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michelle Garcia, who's a journalist, essayist, and current Soros Equality Fellow at the Open Society Foundation, a former Texas correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review and a former columnist for the Texas Observer. She's the director of the PBS documentary Against Mexico, The Making of Heroes and Enemies, and is currently working on a book about borders and their powerful influence on U.S. identity, politics, and culture of violence. We can take a brief station break and back to look at the unrest in the politically unstable and economically fragile Pakistan. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road. A hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Christine Fair, who's a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is the author of Fighting to the End, the Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christine Fair. Hey, thank you for having me again. It's always nice to be with you. Thanks for joining us, Christine, and you've had a, uh, <laughs> a long and uh, somewhat tempestuous relationship with the uh, Pakistan military, and particularly its intelligence wing, the ISI. Uh, yeah. And what's so strange about what's happening now with the unrest in Pakistan over the arrest of Imran Khan, the former prime minister who was backed by the military and then apparently they had a falling out. He was arrested actually in in a courthouse, claims to have been beaten up by the paramilitary people who arrested him and now the Supreme Court of Pakistan has said that the arrest is invalid but he's still living in a police uh, guest house for his own safety. So what do you make of all this? So in the end, I always put my money on the army. Um, the reason is the army is one with the tanks. They're the ones with the F-16s. Um, and, you know, had Imran Khan done what was expected of him, um, you know, the arrest would have served as an object lesson that um, you're not really in charge of the country. You are not really as indispensable as you think you are. They would have come to some sort of, as they say in Pakistan, some jota. And um, elections would happen, and he would have been the prime minister again. But um, what he's done with the rampaging and so forth has really made that kind of samjota or agreement with the, the Pakistan army somewhat impossible. And uh, he may have pretty much ruined his life as a politician, and he, he may have even put at risk the political viability of his political party. So, in, you know, at the end of the day, um, you're always wise to bet on the army getting its way, for better or for worse. I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing uh, by any imagination, but um, we've seen aspects of this before, and the army always comes out on top, always. Well, he, Imran Khan turned against the army. He First of all, he blamed Correct. it blamed the United States in a conspiracy to remove him. Then he turned yep. against Chief of uh, Army Staff General Kumar Javed Bajwa. Yeah. Well, he was, so look, I mean, here's the other thing, right? He was a creature of the Pakistan Army, just like Nawaz Sharif was. So we've seen versions of this story before. So Nawaz Sharif, he was a creature of President Zia al-Haq. And um, when Nawaz Sharif came back to power in 2013, he thought that he had enough popular support that he could take on the army. He tried charging Musharraf uh, with treason, which is interesting because actually Musharraf committed two offenses that could have been uh, charged as treason, but he only chose one. And we saw what happened to Nawaz Sharif. And so in, in some sense, what's happening with Imran Khan is a, a much more uh, expedited account of what happened to Nawaz Sharif. Well, the mob that he that Imran Khan stirred yeah. up ransacked yeah, the official residence of the Lahore Corps commander, right? And that oh yeah, he did. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, but 
you know, people do have to remember that the core commanders have been under attack before. Uh, there, the Peshawar, as well as the Karachi core commander, there was there were suicide attacks against them. There were suicide attacks against Musharraf himself. There was a suicide uh, um, attack that was very specific at Tarbela, in which the suicide attackers had very precise information about the special services group, which is you know basically Pakistan's uh, special operators, who were involved in the siege at the Red Mosque. So, you know, having just studied this institution for, I guess now, three decades plus, it's hard to see this playing out in any other way um, than that which is completely advantageous to the army. This doesn't work out for Imran Khan in the end. It simply doesn't. History is not... Um, on the side of Imran Khan here. But isn't it also advantageous to the jihadis who are are out there in the wings wanting to take over? So, you know, I don't believe that the jihadis really want to take over Pakistan. I mean, we're talking about one set of militant groups. We're talking about the the Pakistani Taliban. yeah, sure. They 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 have some interest in this, but look, the the Pakistan army is absolutely huge. And when we throw in the reserve forces, when we throw in the frontier corps, when we throw in the different policing institutions, one has to ask the question: Why hasn't the army stopped the violence? It surely could have. Um, so this is the army engaging in strategic or I guess as the British would have called it, masterly inactivity, the the army's basically banking on the more outrageous this violence is on behalf of Imran Khan and his supporters, the more unlikable they will become. And if Imran Khan, I mean, the army is really playing the long game here. So had Imran Khan, you know, like a grown-up, uh, face these charges of corruption, uh, he, you know, his political fortunes would have been different. But Imran Khan has this megalomania, like Trump, that he's above the law. And rather than facing these charges in court and proving his innocence, as one would ordinarily be expected to do, he's engaged in these hijinks. And what I fear is going to happen um, is that Ultimately, he's going to be held accountable for all of this destruction. And with simply corruption charges are, are now going to be conspiracy to there's going to be there's going to be a litany of charges that come after this. And what I suspect is going to be the end game is going to be some kind of negotiated settlement by the United States and the United Kingdom to put this guy into exile, kind of like what they did with Nawaz Sharif, like what they did with Benazir Bhutto, and he's just going to have to cool his jets. So, you know, in a month from now, I suspect there's going to be resolution to this. The army is going to be back where the army wants to be, but PTI is not going to be a political force anymore. PTI being his his political political party. party. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I anticipate this playing out. I mean, he has really overplayed his cards. Just like Trump, you know, there's a lot about Imran Khan that's very Trumpian. 
you know, he, he doesn't believe that he should be subjected to the same laws. Um, he believes that the demand for his presence politically should be paramount no matter what he does or how he does it. And he's very destructive. You know, he hasn't done actually anything for Pakistan under his uh, leadership. You know, Pakistan uh, was an economic basket case. It remains an economic basket case. because his, his leaders can't really point out to anything positive that he has done, right? But, you know, when you're a megalomaniac like he is, like Trump is, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to deal with reality. You just get to live in what your circle of sycophants tell you. Right. But you know, as much as Trump talks about the deep state is out to get him, I wish there was a deep state <laughs> in this country that could <laughs> get rid of well, this guy. Because he's, he's more of a menace to America than, uh, than Imran Khan is to Pakistan. Well, look, you know, this is debatable, right? Imran Khan, under his, you know, when his government, um, he has been very soft on jihadis. Very soft because he was very supportive of the Afghan Taliban. Now, you don't have the Pakistan Taliban without the Afghan Taliban. So it really is debatable um, what his net impact is on Pakistan's national security. It really is. And the other thing is, of course, he was, he was very supportive of Russia and not Ukraine. And this really pissed the army off. And the other thing that he tried to do um, is that he wanted the ISI chief who rigged his election to remain the ISI chief. So he, he committed the, the cardinal sin in the army's point of view of getting in the army's business. And he did it because he wanted to make sure that that same ISI chief was in place to help him rig the subsequent elections. Right. So this, you know, he is, there's very little that you can actually say Imran Khan has done for the country. Now, having said that, there's not a lot you can say any in Pakistani prime minister has done uh, for Pakistan. Um, he's, not, he's not an outlier. But what he has done is that he has put his hands into pots that the army very much considers his purview. And, and look, it's, it's, I'm not unsympathetic to the challenges that civilians are trying to make to the Pakistan army. I mean, of course I'm sympathetic to them. Um, but I don't know why Imran Khan thought that by making a tamasha over his arrest, that somehow he was serving anyone except himself. Well, we will see the country, as you mentioned, is on the brink of economic collapse. And, well, which is also why I don't expect martial law, right? Because if, if if there's martial law declared, I mean, as it is, you know, a lot of things were fudged. Like, for example, Pakistan was taken off the gray list uh, of the FATF, which was this, you know, this uh, organization to track states and they're clamping down on the financing of terrorist organizations. So Pakistan was removed from that gray list, not because of the evidence, but because of Pakistan's severe financial crisis. And the army knows that if they bring in martial law, now the army is going to be responsible for the um, inaccessibility of IMF funding. So I don't expect martial law to happen. I do expect the army to just let uh, this violence 
run its course and then use the, the violence against Imran Khan in trying to eliminate him as a political actor in Pakistan. Well, Christine Fair, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Oh, hey, thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul. And she's the author of Fighting to the End, The Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba. And she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Oh